I was doing Zippy as a weekly, you know, in weekly alternative newspapers from 76 to 80. Well, beyond that, to 83, 4, syndicating it myself. When I was approached by first the San Francisco Examiner, where was my local newspaper, starting in 1985, they asked if they could do Zippy daily. And I remember being taken aback by this idea because it was a weekly strip. So I said, you mean you want me to change my life for yeah, you? Yeah, that's a radical yeah, this change was, day to day. Uh, what happened was in 1985, the Hearst organization, mainly Randolph Hearst, gave the examiner to Will Hearst III as sort of a toy to play with. And part of his playfulness, he tried to, he called me and he called Robert Crumb and, he, and Hunter Thompson. And he tried to get all of us to work for him. He was trying to turn into Rolling Stone, it sounds like. Kind, yeah, I, I mean, he was just literally yeah. just having fun. And I was the only one that worked out. Crumb did a series of about 20 strips with his wife, Aileen, but he, he didn't tone down any of the... Yeah. overt sexual nature of the of his work. So, of course, that never saw print. Hunter Thompson did, I think, maybe three columns, and then he had he literally had a gunfight with Will Hurst. He was really... He, that was him at his craziest. That's saying a lot. Yeah, he, he brought a gun to one of their meetings and fired. I, I'm sure he intended to miss, but... You were in a situation where the only thing you had to do to not get fired was to not shoot at your boss. Basically, yes. So for a year, I did Zippy... Daily, and then I got a call from um, her, from King Features from a guy named Alan Prio, which is French spelling. He was, I think, he was managing editor. He flew out to San Francisco and proposed that I bring Zippy into the King Features syndicate and sell it nationally. Another shock to me. I did not intend this to happen. I mean, you felt committed to the strip at that point. Yes, but I never occurred to me that it would be syndicated through a daily newspaper yeah. syndicate. I thought it would just... The examiner allowed me to keep syndicating myself to the weekly papers, and they would just do the daily. And it was Monday to Saturday. There was no Sunday. And I was doing it for about a year, and I was getting into the rhythm of it. It was actually working out pretty well. It appeared on page two of the front part of the paper. It was not on the comics page. So, so Will Hurst III was really pushing it, and he was pushing the strip to his uncle, who hated it, as a kind of gesture of, you know, fuck you, basically. After about a year, it, it started to be back in the comic section, because Randolph Hearst couldn't stand it anymore. He hated it. Given the nature of that situation, there was never any pressure on you to make it, you know, more family-friendly or no. more set-up and punchline? No. When I agreed to do do it for the examiner, and yeah. when I agreed to do it for the for King Features, I made it clear that yes, I would not include four letter words or overt sex acts. But aside from that, it would be just as weird as I wanted it to be. And they never said anything different. I remember when I went to New York to a meeting of the King Features salesmen. They asked me if I had any guidance, and I said, just tell the newspapers they'll be printing the weirdest daily comic strip in America. Any guidance in terms of how to actually market this and thing I, that you're I, making? I, I said, sell it for what it is. Yeah. D don't try to say it's entertainment for children. Just, and I said, maybe you'll run across editors who are of my generation, and they'll be kind of delighted to see that they can run a... Uh, an underground comic that they might have seen when they were young in their daily news. And that's really how it started. The original 
40 or 50 papers that picked it up were mostly editors of my generation who just saw it as just a way to get an underground comic into their newspaper. A lot of people I talk to, especially people who are in weeklies, you know, are obviously talking about the death of print right now. Especially, you know, weeklies are just, alternative weeklies are just kind of going away by the boatload. Are you seeing a similar impact on your own syndication? It's a a slow motion death. Uh, Luckily, it's slow enough that I can um, kind of watch it disappear without completely halting production. But I, I can't imagine I'll be doing it for more than a few more years. I've been doing Zippy every day since 1985, and somehow I've managed to come out with a couple of graphic novels yeah. recently. It's, it's withering. The whole, the whole thing is withering. The fact is there are still plenty of comic strips that are making their creators a, a very good living. But it also seems that in order to really make real, not real money, but really, really good money, you have to have something that's marketable and licensable that can be on T-shirts and mugs. and Yeah, or you just have to... There's a magic formula that I have I have no idea how to achieve. Yeah. Mutz makes Patrick O'Donnell a nice, very nice salary. Gary Trudeau is still in almost 600 newspapers. If you figure that out to a weekly paycheck, you know, you're talking about $10,000 a week. Is it that you couldn't figure out the formula or that you didn't want to do that to your work? I, I, I was incapable of it, and so I never tried. And I use that as, as a basis of humor sometimes. I would, you know, pretend... That Zippy was selling out. And we said, "Am I selling out yet?" You know, there was a, there was an attempt to make a Zippy movie. There was an attempt, and that went on for years. I, I wrote nine drafts of a live action Zippy screenplay. There was from like 1998 to 2000 or 2001. There was an attempt to make an animated show through the people that did the Tick, the Sunbow Company. And that actually we we wrote four greenlit scripts and then the project died all of a sudden you, you can't get your hopes up in hollywood no i Half just the people in this room have had some sort of deal at some my, point my attitude towards showbiz was always take a meeting especially if they're paying you know paying airfare and and per diem and a yeah. hotel i had an agent i got a lot of material a lot of strips out of my meetings i remember once we had a meeting with the disney people this was in the late 80s, maybe. They requested the meeting, and I was curious as to why they would actually, you know, we weren't trying to pitch it. They were asking yeah. us to come to the meeting. And they said, well, we, we screwed up with Pee Wee Herman. We passed on Pee Wee. This was before Pee Wee flamed out, yeah. before so Paul Rubens did his, his thing. So we, we passed on Pee Wee, and we don't want to do it. With Z- we think Zippy is the next Pee Wee, and we don't want to pass on Zippy. And I just sort of sat there. <laughs> absorbing this uh, information and I said well have you read the screenplay and they said oh yeah a great screenplay and they sort of pushed it aside and they said Bill you know what we really um, where we really see Zippy being exploited is in the theme parks you know as one of those big heads that greets the families as they enter Disney World or Disneyland and I said yeah okay and he said but we have one problem and I said what's the problem they said the stubble Zippy's stubble that might be disturbing to people in a really large Head. Of all the things to be disturbed about with Zippy, that's yeah. pretty far down the yeah. list. They said, w- would you make it like, would they be little round dots? Or would they actually, would the stubble actually stick out like it would? They were very concerned. And what I was supposed to say clearly was lose the stubble. If the stubble is a problem, yeah. if that's going to be the deal breaker, no stubble. But I didn't say that. Instead, I said, this was during the days of Miami Vice, the TV show. So I said, well, you know, Don Johnson has made stubble kind of hip. And we were in the parking lot 20 minutes later. The meeting just 
fizzled at that point. It was as if I just, you know, took a crap in the room. I can't see a scenario, especially Disney at that point. Obviously, Disney is just owns everything now, where you could have possibly have been happy with what Disney would have no. done to Zippy. I, as I, as these meetings over the years occurred, I realized I was sabotaging every meeting as an act of self-preservation. Do you feel like that's been a constant in your career, or is that just specifically aimed at Hollywood? I I demand total creative control. Yeah. That's like the end of a deal Absolutely. in Hollywood. You can't yeah. say those words. I remember the three, three things you weren't supposed to say. You weren't supposed to use the word satire in a meeting, or the word surrealism, and you were never supposed to demand total artistic control. The two are probably the defining characteristics of exactly. your strip. Right. And the third satire, is... Satire, surrealism... Yeah. And by the way, I want total yeah. artistic control. Yeah. Then we were ushered into the parking lot after that. Do you think that in the current climate when, you know, Netflix and Hulu are giving everyone deals? There's a whole different world, yes. Yeah. There is current interest in Zippy again, okay. both animated and live action, but in the Netflix-Hulu environment where you can be successful with only, you know, a, a smattering of an audience compared to a feature film. After years of kind of banging your head against the wall in Hollywood, though, is that a road you still want to go down? No. 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 You're done with that. I'm, I'm done with it, but I'm not going to stop a meeting if it sure. happens, and because it's always ent- entertaining. Last time I spoke to you, this was a number of years ago, I think it was at SPX, and it was two graphic novels ago, so it was before the book about your mother had even come out. I think you might have been in the early stages of working on it. I had asked you about long form, and I think you had said that it was something that you were interested in, but I don't know if it was a timing thing or, you know, you just hadn't gotten around to it. Are these projects that have been on the back burner for a while? Yes. The book about my mother, Invisible Ink, that book was kind of handed to me, in a way, by my mother, on her deathbed in 1998. I mean, she literally told me, she pointed to a filing cabinet, and she said, when I go, save that. And I knew I knew one thing that was in there was her unpublished novel, which was a family saga that was, all of my family members were in there thinly disguised. What I didn't know was that there were two long chapters in there about my mother and her long-term affair, with, which I knew about, with a then-famous cartoonist named Lawrence Larrier, cartoonist, editor, mystery writer, schlockmeister, you know, just a guy just never stopped working and trying to sell stuff. She died. My wife and I left San Francisco to live in Connecticut on a whim. We knew some people who lived near where we bought our house. And so that project sort of sat in my basement. Her filing cabinet just sort of sat in the basement. <laughs> from 1998 until 2014 when for some reason I guess I was I was ready to do something yeah. decided to start tackling this subject she had left me her journals and her unpublished novel and on a visit to my uncle her brother in 2014 we were talking about my mother and I asked him if she if he was aware that my mother had had this relationship with this man and he said no, so I told him, and he was very interested. That night, I googled Lawrence Larrier, and hundreds of images came out. That was it. I mean, I literally, that, that was the night that I decided to do the book. I had all the material for my mother. Then Larrier was this chameleon cartoonist. He did original comics for the first comic book, New Fun Comics in 1936. He did four daily strips, all of which folded within a few years. He did gag cartoons. He did, you know, girly art. He did calendar art. He just did a huge amount of work. And my mother, this was the man my mother 
loved. She had this very serious monogamous affair with him for 16 years. So I was I was given this material to make something out of. That's what I did. Still must have been difficult to transition, though, from having done The Daily Strip for so long to tackling something well, longer. Yeah, but ever since Mao's, aside from just me being so impressed by what Art had done, as soon as I finished, I, I thought, is there, a, is there a graphic novel like that in me? And my answer was maybe, always, maybe. Every year, maybe, maybe, maybe. And then one year it was... This is the year. 30 years of maybes. Yeah, 30 years of maybe. Well, doing Zippy seven days a week, I mean, producing... I can't imagine. Which I'm still doing. It's pretty pretty completely involving. Well, I mean, you referred to first doing the strip for the paper as being a life-changing experience from the perspective of actually changing the way you lived your life. Yeah. This sounds like that all over again. I mean, this is going to impact the rest of your day, the rest of your week. Well, when I first started doing Invisible Ink... I felt like a, a dam had burst, a creative dam had burst inside me. Before I did Zippy as a daily, I did lots of long stories in the underground comics scene of the 70s. But there's did, long and then there's long. Right. I mean, I think the longest maybe was 20 pages. Yeah. Yes. But I missed it. Sometimes in the daily strip, I would do a continuity series where this, you know, the story would actually follow from day to day for two weeks, three weeks, maybe four weeks. So I did have this urge to do long-form comics, albeit, you know, medium or short long-form. But when I started doing Invisible Ink, it felt like it had been building. Something had been building inside me. And as soon as I finished it, within two months, I felt like I had like an empty nest syndrome. Postpartum depression. Yeah, yeah, my child had left. So what did I do? I brought a new child in, and I I did the Schlitzie book. And as soon as the Schlitzie book was done, I felt the same thing. And now I'm doing another one. Schlitzie must have been something that was rattling around for a long time too. I mean, yeah. obviously this was inspiration for Zippy. Yeah, this was this all this goes all the way back as as it's described in the book. It goes back to me at the age of 19 when I was in art school in New York. I saw the movie Freaks just on a whim. Yeah, this was way before things were cable or internet. Yeah, I mean, or, this was yeah. in a, a Greenwich Village loft somewhere. Yeah. And I remember when I when I saw the notice for the film, I had no idea what it was. But I thought, it's in a Greenwich Village loft, so maybe there'll be beatniks there or something cool will happen. Um, you wanted an experience. I, yeah, I wanted an experience. And it, it, it did happen. I mean, <laughs> I walked into this room with folding chairs, and there were actual beatniks there, um, all these bohemian types. Yeah. And I watched this movie, and I was transfixed. I remember I left to go home, and I thought, I have to process this experience somehow in, in some, some art form, but I was not a cartoonist at the time. No interest in cartooning. Cartooning to me was something that I, I left as maybe a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, and what I really was meant to be was a fine artist yeah. in the Vincent van Gogh, Jackson Pollock. You wanted Pollock. people to take you seriously. Yeah, I was going to be like Picasso, yeah. right? So I had no way to process it. I, I came home and I did a couple of little paintings. There was no images to look at. It was just the experience. There was no... There's no internet. There's no Google no image. No internet. There was no book. Yeah. There was... I couldn't see... I didn't realize there were postcards of Schlitzie, but I didn't know... I didn't know they existed or how to find them. Um, they were sold in the sideshow. You must have had that moment coming out. I mean, I've had this a few points in my life where I go experience something and come out and it's just like, did that happen? Yeah. Was that just a no, weird fever no, dream? Yeah, I mean, it was. it was part of a... A thing that happened to me quite often in the age of like 19 to 25. There were these two movie theaters in New York, The Thalia and The New Yorker. 
And that's where they first showed Marx Brothers and um, Humphrey Bogart movies. So these were probably big, beautiful yes, theaters. Yes, big, beautiful theater. Um, you know, like, but they were like midnight showings. Yeah. You know, and I had similar experiences to seeing W. C. Fields and the Marx Brothers. I felt like I was being. I felt like I was like an acid trip or yeah. something. Theater. This is a level beyond freaks. There's nothing like freaks. this in no, the world. Freaks. Freaks was a little bit like watching. A very professionally done home movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, very few people in the movie were actors. There were only a few um, Hollywood actors yeah. in the film. I didn't know it at the time, but Browning, Todd Browning himself, the director, had a sideshow background. So this was a world that he was very familiar with. This was a movie he wanted to make for years. Uh, unfortunately, it destroyed his career yeah. because it was a total flop. You know, the interesting thing about how Freaks flopped, it didn't flop because it was too weird or too strange or whatever. It flopped because reviewers and the general public were offended that they would have to look at these people. There was no sympathy for the people. They were just offended at having these people thrust into their awareness. How dare you? How dare you do this to us? Was the It's a 180 from yeah. why people will be offended now. Absolutely. Totally different world. There was no sympathy for the, uh, the sideshow people as, you know, handicapped or... They're doing all they could to make a living or anything. It was just general disgust. Why would you want to subject yourself to a film about sideshow people with physical deformities and weird sex lives or whatever? So, I mean, if you read, I've read all the reviews of the movie. There was only one positive review from the New York Times. If you're going to get a positive review, that's a good one to get very, one from. Very brief, very brief, but. The other ones were all outraged. You touch on this a little bit in the book. Well, I mean, quite a bit, actually, both through your own perspective about, you know, midway through the book, but also Schlitzie's experience touring around, that there was just something about him. You know, he was surrounded by all these other people, all these other characters, but there was something magnetic or transfixing about him specifically. His default mood was happy. He was prankish. He was always having fun. That was his desire. And you have to remember, in the sideshow world, there's a very protective family kind of feeling among the sideshow freaks. And there's two levels of it. The level at which the sideshow performers are skilled, like a sword swallower or a fire eater or a contortionist, they feel camaraderie for each other. But then the ones who are physically or emotionally or mentally handicapped, like Schlitzy, People who, when you leave the circus, yes, you're still like that. People who need care, they're even more protected and even in a deeper family sense that goes on with them. If Schlitzy had remained in his family, I'm, I would imagine he would have had a very short, unpleasant life. This was 1901 in the Bronx, an immigrant family. They would have probably hidden him away. There would have been a lot of shame attached to the fact that they had produced this damaged child. He would have not had a good life, I don't think. So how do you reconcile that? Because, again, you know, especially in today's environment, a movie like Freaks is viewed as exploitation. Yeah, well... It sounds like, you know, you're saying in his case specifically it was beneficial, but at the same time, you can see the problem in parading people out to look at their disfigurements, their disabilities. Yeah, but then, then, who, then who are the... Who are the real freaks? The ones on the stage or the ones in the audience? It's, it's not a clear and simple act of exploitation that's going on. When the sideshows finally kind of died away, beginning in the 60s and then into the early 70s, when they really just disappeared, the people who were working in them couldn't understand how their, li their livelihoods could be taken away like that. This was a viable career for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. 
yes. people who probably couldn't get other That's right. jobs. Yes, someone like Schlitzi. I mean, Schlitzi had the cognitive abilities of about a four-year-old child. But if you've ever interacted with a four-year-old child, that's saying a lot. He had an emotional life. He had likes and dislikes. He had attachments to people. He was capable of all the emotions that a four-year-old child are capable of, and then some. I mean, the man that I interviewed extensively who worked with him in the mid-60s, Wolf Krakowski, who's in the book, gave me insights into what Schlitzie was like as a person, really. Because Wolf traveled for three months throughout Canada. He was the manager of the bumper cars in the Conklin and Garrett Circus and Sideshow. But he roomed with Schlitzie in various hotels for three months. And this was a guy, he was 18 years old, but he was carrying around Jean-Paul Sartre's Being in Nothingness. That was his... His, his book for the summer to read. So he's a, a smart, sensitive yeah. young guy. He's a real fun beach yeah. party guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he constantly got yeah. made fun of for reading that book yeah. in the circle. But he said things to me like, you know, Schlitzie, after a, a day's work, um, Schlitzie would be given his fried chicken dinner, and he would listen to music, and he would sway to the music. He liked the early Beatles. He'd listen to the Beatles. And then he would ask, he would cuddle. He would cuddle with you. Wolf said it was like a very privileged feeling and that, it, that he felt tremendous compassion for Schlitzie during these times. It is interesting because it does actually come across to some degree, I think, in the movie. You know, Schlitzie's two or three lines in the film. It's actually kind of sweet. That's just, that was his basic nature. I happen to have in my family a microcephalic member. She's 12 years old. I've only, she's a distant relative. I've only seen her maybe three or four times. But she's, she's Schlitzie. She is, Always happy and smiling. I'm not. I'm not trying to make a Pollyanna thing here. I'm not trying to whitewash or whatever. This is who she is, and I think this is who Schlitzie was. Schlitzie's basic nature was playful and happy. At the same time, made him unhappy. He let you know that he was unhappy. One of the things he would do was he would mimic people around him physically and vocally. The twelve-year-old who's in my family does the exact same thing. She mimics people around her waiting for them to laugh. Yes, she has a mental handicap. She has she needs parental supervision probably for the rest of her life. So that's that's not something any family wants to have happen. But what are you going to do that she's still a human being and she's basically a happy human being. And I think that's that's Schlitzie. Yes, he was, you know, his act consisted of almost nothing. <laughs> he got up on the stage and these these people that they're not called barkers, they're called talkers. Barker is not the, the word they use. And they would invent these elaborate stories for who he was. And then he would say, count to ten, Schlitzie, and Schlitzie would go, one, two, three, four, five, six. And he would stop at seven and look kind of happy. And then he would say, seven is my favorite number. He would do a card trick, but he would hold a, a deck of cards out, pick a card, any card, and then he would say it was the ten of spades. The entire deck was all the ten of spades. He pretended to play the ukulele. He pretended to do a few magic tricks. But he basically was just there to be himself. A lot of people tried to make friends with him on the sideshow. They would try to talk to him and go backstage. And it was very appealing. Yes, he was tormented. And I, I asked his, his next, to the, next to the last manager, Ward Hall, who is now 90 years old, gave me a nice interview, a couple of interviews. I said, what, what happened when... Schlitzie would have been inevitably tormented occasionally. And I would imagine it was usually by teenage boys. And he said, you got that right. 
the worst people on earth. Yeah, he said, let's see, would, after a certain point, if it got bad, especially when they threw lit cigarettes at him, which happened, he would go down on all fours, he would crawl to the edge of the sideshow stage, stare intently into the eyes of his tormentors, and say his catchphrase over and over, which was, you see, you see, and he would literally, now I'm doing air quotes, freak them out. They would take off, and the audience would turn on them at that point. And this happened, no, not every time, but it yeah. would happen. It also gives you an insight into who Schlitzie was, that he would do that. Obviously, Schlitzie and Zippy are not, they're not the same. They share some physical characteristics, the moo-moo. Yeah, Zippy is a vehicle for satire. Schlitzie's a real person. Is Zippy sort of a, a cipher? I mean, what, what is it about Zippy that's had the longevity that Zippy he has? Is, Zippy is my, my better half. I'm half Zippy and half Griffy. Until I created Griffy, Zippy might not have, might not have survived. I remember Art Spiegelman once said, this was like in 1974, he said, you know, I, Bill, I like Zippy, but it's kind of like being stuck in an elevator with a crazy person. You're waiting for your floor when you can get out. And I went home that night and I thought, Zippy can't be just as crazy as he is. I have to give him like some kind of sidekick who's his opposite. And that's when I created the Griffey character. But once I did that, I was satisfying both halves of my personality. There you go. That was Bill Griffith. Recorded that one a while back at the Mocha Fest in Manhattan. His fantastic new book, Nobody's Fool, The Life and Times of Schlitzie the Pinhead, is out now on Abrams Book, and I highly, highly recommend you check it out. And of course, Zippy is uh, probably in your local newspaper. Thanks so much to him. Always a pleasure speaking with him. Thanks to you guys for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify and YouTube now. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback on the show, it's rwildcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwildcast.tumblr.com. And that's about all we got for now, so stick around because we're going to be back in just about another week with another episode of R.I.Y.L.